Well, hello, friends, once again, and welcome. If you're joining us for the first time, you really picked a great week to jump in, and you're crazy if this is your first week in this Daylight Savings, but that just means you're hardcore, and we appreciate that, too. Uh, we are launching into a new series that's going to take us right up to Easter Sunday called Fully Alive, and I really couldn't be more excited. This material has been rattling around in my head for about three months, and if I don't do something with it, I'm going to literally explode. So just prepare yourself, buckle up. It's going to be a great ride. Um, the title, Fully Alive, comes from something I heard during a seminary lecture many, many years ago. And if you're not a church person and you don't know what seminary is, it's basically graduate school for pastors. It does sound a little bit like cemetery, and there are days it actually feels like a cemetery. Uh, but this day in particular, I will never forget, I was in a class on discipleship or what it looks like to follow Jesus. And during the course of the lecture, uh, the professor quoted a second century Christian saint named Saint Irenaeus. Now, I don't tend to read second century Christian theologians very much. In fact, this is the only quote I've ever read from this guy, but it's a great quote, um, and it sort of has been with me since, and I thought it'd be fun to sort of unpack it. Here's what St. Irenaeus wrote uh, like 1,900 years ago. He said, the glory of God is man, and, and because of the era that man is inclusive, it's human, the glory of God is man or woman fully alive. And if you stop to consider that, 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 that may take your mind and your heart in directions that you're not very familiar with. But, but if you really dig down on this, there's an observation that the professor shared in the lecture that falls from this that I want to leap off of today. He, he said this. He said, what if what God ultimately wants for your life is the same thing that you ultimately want for your life? What if what God ultimately wants for your life is the same thing you ultimately want for your life? And I know what you're thinking, that that's a, a new thought, that's a counterintuitive reality for a whole bunch of us. Because if we're honest, many of us envision God as a sort of police officer in the sky, don't we? You ever had that thought? He leverages fear and guilt to keep you from doing the things that you really want to do. And then he's going to like pull you over and write you a ticket when you actually do the things you really want to do. That's sort of a, a common picture people have of God. He's the God of the thou shalt nots. It's a little King James reference for you there, right? He's, he's the God who hates sin because it breaks his law. But it may surprise you to learn that this is not the picture of God that Jesus painted in the New Testament. Because over and over again, if you were to say to Jesus, what is God like? Jesus would say, God is a heavenly father. He's a heavenly father and he hates sin, not so much because it breaks his law. He hates sin because it hurts his kids and it breaks his heart. Sin hurts people and so God hates sin. In fact, this helps us understand why God didn't just send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, which he certainly did. But before Jesus died, he lived. He lived around 30 years, during which time he taught and modeled a new way to be human in this life here and now. A way which activated potential that God places in each and every one of our lives. He came to show us what it looks like to be fully alive here and now. He actually says as much during a conversation one day with his first followers. Uh, one of them, John, who was there, rec later recorded Jesus' words for us. But here's what Jesus says. Um, he says, I have come 
that they, and in that they would be you and me and Jesus' first disciples, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, abundant, full color life, the life that you were made for, the life that your soul longs for. God wants you and I to experience the life he had in mind when he created us. Like any good parent, your heavenly father wants the best for his children. And actually that makes sense if you think about it. Uh, even imperfect parents, like, I don't know, take for example me, uh, want the best for our children. It, it, it's like, I, I brought a picture of my boys. So I've, I've showed this once before, but this is a picture of my boys from this past fall. You can say, oh my goodness, they're so cute. They're so cuddly. They're so snuggly. Let me tell you something. They can be evil. Okay. I'm just saying, just saying, don't let the Pinterest fit, you know, fool you. So uh, even though they can sometimes be rather not wonderful, I always love them and I am deeply connected to them. And if you were to say, what are some of the greatest joys you experienced during your week? I would say, I get a lot of joy from those moments when I see my children thrive, to step into the potential in their lives. And, and I, I would argue that some of my greatest struggles come when I watch my children struggle. And again, all of you that are parents or grandparents know exactly what I'm talking about. When our kids struggle, we struggle. And, and sometimes they struggle because of the result of choices that they make, and that causes a lot of struggle for us. In some mysterious way, we are connected to them, and they are connected to us. We're the parent and they're the child. And Jesus repeatedly suggests that this reality is even more true with regards to our heavenly father. And with this understanding, this maybe counterintuitive for you picture of God, the quote from St. Irenaeus actually makes a lot of sense. The more you and I become fully alive, the more glory it brings to our heavenly father. He made you and through Jesus is connected to you. And so when your life shines, he shines. That's why I think the professor was right when he suggested what you ultimately want for your life is what God ultimately wants for your life. And so that said, what I want to do for the next five weeks is explore areas of our lives. And I think there'll be something in each of these weeks for all of us that where we sometimes unknowingly steal potential from ourselves. We literally hurt ourselves. Potential for growth, potential for impact, potential for health in all of its various flavors, potential for life. And after identifying an area each week, I want to give you some really practical steps of what you, what you can do if you desire to take a step towards the life that God has in mind for you. So to set up our conversation today, I need to tell you about a meeting that I had recently. And I had this meeting at a place where many, many, many significant conversations happen. I was at a local outpost of America's favorite drug dealer. Across from me um, was a friend who I had known for decades, but hadn't seen for years. And he reached out to me to connect or to reconnect because he was frustrated with his faith journey, with the journey of his life after God. And, and, and so he reached out. He knew that I was a pastor. He's not part of our community. Um, but we sat down and, and he sort of opened up and, and I asked him a series of questions. You know, how did you get aware of this frustration in your faith journey? What does it look like? And after a series of questions, he confessed that his relationship with God, and some of you know exactly what this feels like, he said, it's been on autopilot for years. 
He said, I'm still attending church. I'm still singing the songs. I'm still listening. He's like, I'm even a note taker. So he's like a hardcore church person, right? Um, he was said he was in a small group where he would gather and toss around the ideas that they talked about on Sunday. And, he, and then he said this, he goes, I even consider myself to be a generally decent human being, which I, I thought that was awesome. Um, but he said, I, I feel stalled in my pursuit of God. I feel like I'm, I'm going through the motions. And then he kind of had this like pregnant pause and he goes, okay, I might as well tell you. He goes, I'm actually considering dropping out of church because I, I just, I don't know if it's making that much difference in my life. And so I said, okay, well, tell me about a time when you feel like it did make a difference in your life. And not just church, but, but your pursuit of God. And he said, oh, you know, that's easy. He said, there were times where my faith felt alive. It was vibrant. It was colorful. It was, it was inspiring to my family. I mean, I, I introduced a few of my brothers to Jesus, like, you know, indirectly, but, but they've come to faith in Jesus because, you know, because of what God did through me. And then he said, but, but those times, if I'm honest, that's been a long time ago. I mean, that's years in the past. That's well in the rearview mirror of life. And so he said, I, I reached out to you. It's kind of a Hail Mary. It's my last sort of, I, I, before I depart, I need to just see what's going on. So do you have any suggestions for me? And I was like, are you kidding me right now? I mean, this is like throwing steak to a Rottweiler, right? I mean, ask me that question. I was like, oh, buckle up, man. Here we go, right? I, I said, I need to ask you two great questions. And they're questions I ask myself regularly. And it's questions that any serious person, and if you're serious about following Jesus, you need to ask these questions yourself. Uh, and it goes like this. I said, are you aware of something that you are doing that Jesus wouldn't want you to do right now? Not what you've done in the past, but like right now, as you say here, are you aware of something that you're doing that Jesus wouldn't want you to do? And there's a, there's a parallel question. Are you aware of something you're not doing that Jesus would want you to do, right? So it kind of goes both ways. Maybe it's something that Jesus would have you start doing. Maybe it's something Jesus would have you stop doing. But, but in other words, is, is Jesus making any noticeable difference in your life beyond where you choose to spend your Sunday mornings? And as he sat there, he said, he realized that it had been a long time since he had asked questions like that. It had been a long time since he'd felt tension in his spiritual life. And, and he confessed to me, he goes, and it isn't because I feel like I'm perfectly aligned with the plan that God would have for my life. I don't think that my heart and God's heart are beating in exactly the same way. I know there's some things that I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing. And I, and I know that there's some other things I should start doing or that stop doing that I am doing. And he said, I guess, if I'm honest, years ago, I just, I reached a point where I, I quietly decided that I was probably good enough for now. And though I knew that there was more work to do in my spiritual life, I, I just said, I guess I'll get to that later. But he goes, the problem with later is later's always later. And I said, the good news is that you're actually already on your way to breathing life back into your stale faith. Because I said, I, I, I believe that the fact that you reached out to me and the fact that you had answers to the questions that I asked really is, is half the battle. You, you know what you need to do. You just have to get around to doing it. And this brings me to our big idea for today. It goes like this. I said, in my experience, the cure for spiritual apathy, which is sort of where he was at, the cure for spiritual apathy is contemplation, thinking about what needs to change, followed by action. So there's a number of different ways this can get broken down, right? I mean, if you just think about stuff and never do it, uh, but, but there's people that don't ever even think about stuff. So they're, they're two clicks removed. That wasn't, that wasn't his story. 
But we need to think about the changes we need to make, and then we actually need to change. And, and in his case, you know, I said one without the other doesn't really accomplish much of anything, but you already know that. Because if you think about it, believing you need to change is fine. Intending to change is fine. Talking to a counselor or reaching out to a pastor and buying him a $7 coffee is fine, right? But in the end, it's what you actually do that impacts the life you get to experience. And we kind of go, well, uh, duh. But in regards to our spiritual life, people get this wrong all the time. And I bring this conversation up this morning because I have a suspicion that my well-caffeinated, spiritually apathetic friend is not the only person who lives within a six-mile radius of this church who has experienced this. He isn't the only one of us who's seen their faith slide into routine and apathy. And he isn't the only one this morning that needs to be reminded that learning is important, but in the end, application is everything. Well, not surprisingly, this, is, this has been a struggle for Christians since the beginning. Um, and the New Testament, those letters written to early Christians, are filled with encouragement along these lines. And what I want to do with our time is, is share with you two different passages from the New Testament that sort of go after this. And I'm going to tease out a couple of things and then give you some, some suggestions on what you might do if you want to get around to the actual doing. Uh, one of the most famous passages of encouragement uh, comes from a letter written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, after Jesus' resurrection, James becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And by the way, can you imagine how cool it would be to be Jesus' younger brother? Right? I mean, can you imagine the stories that James would tell? I bet those places were packed just so he could tell stories about what Jesus was like as a kid. That would be a lot of fun. Or maybe it wouldn't, like you thought your older brother was obnoxiously perfect. There you go, right? But anyway, uh, here's what James writes to early followers of Jesus. And again, whenever you read encouragement in the New Testament, it's important for us to remember that James is writing to them because they weren't doing this. There was an actual issue that he was trying to address in these letters. So here's what, here's what James says to early Jesus followers. He says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, he says, do what it says. Don't just listen, do something. Now, when he says, listen to the word, um, he's basically talking about those times in church when you hear something that you really should apply to your life, something you should start doing, something you should stop doing, a change you need to make. You hear it, you get it, you understand. You might even make a note in your program, think about that later. But James says, then, you know, you, then, then you, the danger is you, you hear it, but then you walk out the door and you go to Panera and you get out with your life and you just kind of kick the can down the road or forget you need to do anything. And again, this has been a problem for a very long time. The fact that James wrote these words 2,000 years ago is strong evidence that the more things change, they didn't have iPhones, the more they stay the same. Because for as long as there have been Christians, there have been people who thought quietly, maybe never actively process what they were thinking, but they believe there's religious value from simply hearing and receiving. But there's not. You've got to apply what you learn if you want to activate the benefit of the teaching, whatever that is. In other words, you've got to do something. James, James uses some pretty strong language. He says, if you believe that simply listening to something and understanding it is going to help you, he's like, you're deceiving yourselves. It won't move your life in the direction you ultimately want it to go. 
And just a brief aside, um, if you grew up in a religious culture like me, you may have picked up a rather toxic idea that if you showed up at church and listened, God would bless you. Anybody have that? You don't have to slip up your hand. It'd be awkward for the person next to you, right? Yeah, church attendance was kind of like, and they never taught this, but you just sort of caught it in the air. It was sort of like a good luck charm. Uh, It's like, you know, I remember what I did on Friday night, and I remember what I did on Saturday night. So dude, I better go to church both services, right? Because if there's like a punch card for blessing and if there's any sort of credit you get for being there, I'm going to need extra credit this week, right? Uh, And so your faith, at least the faith you picked up, it had nothing to do with application. It was about being there and hearing. And James would say, once again, if that's what you think, you have been deceived. In the end, nothing helps unless you do something with what you've heard. And James is about to get spunky as he continues his letter. Let me show you what he says next. Playful illustration. He says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like, and I love this, someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And that's kind of funny, but it's actually even more funny when you see what he's actually trying to say. James is like saying, let me tell you how absolutely ridiculous listening and not doing is. Imagine this with me. You wake up in the morning. And you come out of a deep sleep and you've slapped the snooze button four times as long as you dare. And you get out of bed and you put your slippers on and you creep like Gollum from The Hobbit into your bathroom, right? And you look up at your mirror, mirror on the wall. Thanks. I was waiting a week for that, right? And you ask it the question, who is the fairest of them all? And the mirror looks back at you and you notice there is a massive, I mean, award-winning Guinness Book of World Records zit on your nose, okay? And you, you're horrified. You have no idea how this happened. You begin to think of all the things that you might have eaten the previous day that would have led to this horror greeting you in the mirror. But you just, you take it all in and a millisecond later, you think something must be done, right? I cannot possibly go into the world like this because all day people will just look at my nose and not my eyes and no one will be paying attention when I'm talking. I can't live like that. So that established, James says, you realize you've got to intervene big time. You just turn around and walk out the door and do nothing. James basically is saying, you know, he says you immediately forget what you look like. You intentionally put out what needs to change. You do nothing with what you saw. And let's be honest, you would never do that physically, would you? I, you know, in fact, when we think about our, our physical appearance, uh, what we do is we begin to intervene the moment we see something is wrong, Right? We prioritize our physical appearance. And so we stand in front of the mirror as long as it takes to be presentable. And we have tools to help, do we not? We have brushes. We have creams. We have nose hair clippers, which have become more useful to me since turning 40. We have hair dryers, which have become less useful to me since turning 40. We have makeup. We have base foundations and things that I don't know. That's all I could think of. Yeah, but you know, there's more stuff. And what we do is we get all the tools out and we sit there and we look until we fix it, whatever it is. We do what must be done to address the problem at hand. And James says, for most of us, we know, we really know deep down what God wants us to do in our lives. And we might even have a sense deep down that we should do what he wants. Like, 
man, if I, if I actually got around to doing that, I would be in a better spot and so would the people around me. We know what the next step in our faith journey really needs to be. It's not an issue of knowing. It's not an issue of receiving. It's just an issue that we're not doing it. And maybe for you, like my friend at Starbucks, it's more an issue of apathy than intentional disobedience. Maybe you've been telling God, I know that's important. I'm going to get to that later. But maybe you've been telling him that for decades. But whether it's intentional disobedience or whether it's just telling God later, the result is the same. You're not activating the life and the potential that God has given you. And so James confronts this reality. And again, it's been a problem since there have been Christians. He asks us a great question. Why would you know what you need to do and not do it? You'd never do that physically, but with regards to your faith, you're negligent. So James might even say to all of us, hey, listen, don't blame God if your spiritual life feels flat. It's not his fault. He's told you what you need to do. You just need to make a move. A similar idea surfaces in a letter written by Jesus' disciple, Peter. Uh, Peter was the oldest disciple. Most scholars believe he was the impulsive disciple. He's the one that hops out of the boat when Jesus invites him and he briefly walks on the water before he doesn't walk on water. But anyway, uh, Peter, late in his life, writes letters to early Christians that made their way into the New Testament. And he encourages them with, with sort of what matters most. And this is one of the ideas that he brings up with followers of Jesus. And again, because they need to hear it, here's how Peter says it in a letter called Second Peter. He says, his divine power, so speaking of God, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. But keying in on that first part, his divine power, God's divine power has given us, it's a gift, you've received it, you have everything you need for life and godliness, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Peter wants you to understand that before you try to do anything, that God in Christ has given you everything you need to be fully alive. Up to this point in his letter, there are no commands. He doesn't tell you to do anything or to stop doing anything. He just simply celebrates the fact that God's divine power enables you to live a life that simultaneously brings God glory and brings you to the best version of yourself. Peter continues, he says, through these, these gifts, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And I know what you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? That passage is a bit complicated, but what he wants us to understand is that there's a purpose behind God's gift to us. God wants to empower us supernaturally to live beyond the self-destructive choices that we naturally make. He gives us the potential to navigate life in a corrupt world with integrity and with grace. But potential, this gift that God has given us, is not the same thing as realized potential. See, because of the sort of relationship God wants with you and that God wants with me, he's not in the business of just zapping you and suddenly making you a different person. He's not going to change you without your participation. He's given you everything you need. But Peter says, as he continues in the next verse, for this very reason, because he's given you, because he's given you the power, because he's given you the potential, because he's given you the vision, what does he say? Make every effort. Make every 
effort. He's given you everything you need, so make every effort. In other words, after placing your faith in Jesus, you have some work to do if you're going to access the life that God has in mind for you. And it's not so you earn something with God. Peace with God is a gift that's received through placing your faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you. That's not what that's about. That's, that's about the life to come. But for the life here and now, God has given you an invitation to participate with him in becoming the person he had in mind when he knit you together inside of your mother. And you say, well, what, what does that look like? Make every effort. What, what sort of things would I be looking for? And as Peter continues in this verse, he gives us seven character qualities that we should be constantly pursuing in order to become more fully alive. Here's, here's how he says it. Make every effort, he says, to add to your faith. So it starts with faith in Jesus. That much is clear. To your faith, goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. He continues. He says, and to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. There, here's a list of the seven. He, there are these seven things that he says, if, if you pursue these things, you will start to be more the sort of person that God has designed you to be. The Christian life is not intended to be a spectator sport. And though my friend at Starbucks didn't use that language, he would say he's sort of been sitting on the bench watching his life go by, getting good input, but not doing much with it. And Peter would say, God has invited you into the project of reconstructing your life in the image of Jesus. Now it takes no imagination whatsoever when we look at these things, the brotherly kindness, the goodness, the godliness, and the love, that a life characterized by these things is a better sort of life. It's a life that's more fully alive. And deep down, if we're honest, we would say, man, that's the kind of life, when I think about my preferred future, that's the kind of life I want for me. And so Peter says, listen, you have everything you need from God. It's a gift. So make every effort. He's given you everything you need. So make every effort. Years ago, I was uh, sitting in a row at a church much like this one. And I heard a really helpful illustration on this concept, and it's hung with me. Uh, the pastor was teaching. He said, uh, you ever been to Home Depot? To which everyone said, yes, right? He said, when you're at Home Depot in the summertime, in summertime, if you've forgotten, it's, a, it's like the grass is green and the sky is blue and there's leaves on the trees. It's wonderful. You, wait till you see it. It's awesome. But you pull into Home Depot in the summertime, and along one side of the parking lot, they've got these garden sheds, and every person in this room has thought, now that is quite a garden shed, is it not? That's like garden shed that is magazine compliant. But anyway, you, you see the garden shed and you think, man, I would love a garden shed because my garage is so packed with stuff that I cannot put a car in my garage. And I think the sole purpose of a garage should be a car and I've managed to fill it with other things. So I need more garage. And lo and behold, someone has invented the garden shed. Praise be to God, right? And if you were ever to reach a point where you said, I'm actually going to invest in a garden shed. I'm going to put one of these in my, in my yard. And so you would go in to the pro desk where they handle these sorts of things and you would talk to them about which one you wanted and what color the siding you wanted. And they would ask you a question. Would you like your garden shed fully assembled? To which any sane person would say what? Yes, please just drop it off, okay? But then they tell you how much more it costs if it's fully assembled. And then the Dutch in us, thank you, right? Says, 
oh, I guess I'll just do it myself. And, and so you end up ordering not so much a utility shed, but a utility shed kit, which is not a, the same thing as a utility shed. Okay. And you maybe go home and tell your spouse that you have purchased a utility shed and they say, that's wonderful. I can't wait to see it. And when it shows up in the driveway, friends, it does not look like a utility shed. It comes on a construction pallet and it has everything you need to build a utility shed. I made a list, wood and nails and caulk and shingles and everything else because that's all I could think of that you would need to build a utility shed. And the boards are already pre-cut and there is an instruction manual and you look at the shed that will be someday and you think to yourself, man, I have everything I need. And then you think, I have some work to do. And if you begin to tell yourself later, then next fall, when it starts to get cold and leaves land on top of the pile, you still have everything you need and now it's just all wet. And then the snow comes and you can't get in your driveway anymore. And then your, your spouse is probably mad at you. I'm just speaking, you know, this has never happened to me directly, but you know what I'm saying, right? It's like you have everything you need, but until you actually get down to the doing, you don't have a garden shed. You just have the potential for garden shed. And the pastor says, you know, that's, there's an easy parallel to our spiritual lives. Peter would tell us that the cure for spiritual apathy is already in our hands. God has given us everything we need to pursue fullness and faith and life. And now it's our move. We need to do what we know we need to do. And the good news is that when we do this, we activate the potential in our lives and we take a step towards being fully alive. And by the way, that is what I told my well-caffeinated, spiritually apathetic friend at Starbucks. And that's what I wanted to say to those of us who walked in this morning believing that there's supposed to be more in this relationship that we're pursuing with God and, and really not sure what to do with that sense. Well, before we close, I want to give you some homework. Um, and basically, it flows right out of our big idea for today. I want to encourage you to contemplate. And then I want to encourage you to act. And this is, a good, this is actually a good rhythm for anybody seeking to follow Jesus. A couple of questions. Um, is there a gap between your present reality and what you, what you know what God wants for you ultimately? Is there a gap? Is there an obvious area in your life where you have been telling God later? Maybe it's someone you need to forgive. Or maybe for some of you, it's, it's, he's calling you into a new level of, of generosity and, and you've just been kind of putting it off. And maybe the message for you this morning is, is just, it's time to get off the bench. It's time to start giving more of yourself away. For some of you, it might even be, and I was thinking about this this morning, it might even be time to reach out to that friend who you know has been asking questions spiritually and just invite him to come to church with you. Tell him about the popcorn. It's great, right? And, and the dill popcorn sauce, very good. I'm just saying. Right, but you can just I mean, bring him with you and then maybe take him out to breakfast or lunch afterwards and just have a conversation. Maybe the next step in your faith journey is actually coming alongside someone else and helping them with their faith Journey, And there's many people sitting around you who would say that, that the act of sharing faith has been one of the most catalytic things for their faith. So take some time this week and contemplate. And once you've recognized what you need to do, then just take the next step and act, right? If you see a pair of Nike shoes, just think, just do it. There you go. Visual aid. There you go, right? 
Because I'm convinced that the cure for spiritual apathy really is contemplation followed by action. And I'm also convinced that it's one of the principles in life that can be leveraged to move you in the direction of being fully alive. Would you stand? And I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, every time we reflect on that title that Jesus taught us to address you with. I'm just taken aback by all of the other images that fill my mind when I think of you. I pray that we would ground ourselves in the reality that you are for us and you are with us and you are ahead of us and you have a future in mind for all of us. That you love us enough to let us tell you no for now and but that every time we do, we're trading some potential that you've put in our life for something that isn't worth it. And so I pray that you would give us courage as we take an honest look at the way we are pursuing life with you and life with your son. I pray that you would bring to mind those things that really need to change and give us the courage to just pick one and move in your direction. And as we do, I pray that our faith would intersect with your faithfulness and we would experience a combustion of our souls, that we would, we would step towards the life that you have for us. Thank you for the grace in which we stand because none of us are going to do this perfectly. And most of all, we thank you for Jesus who came among us to show us the way and the truth and the life. It is in his name that we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week for part two of Fully Alive.